This recording is a production of Faith Builders Educational Programs. This presentation was recorded at Teachers Conference 2017 held at Faith Builders on October 13 through 15. Children of the Heavenly Father, you will take care of us. Beautiful singing this morning. Thank you, Kyle, for leading us in worship. Worship and song is a strong practice that nurtures brotherhood. And so it's been appropriate to spend time this morning singing together. It's our final session. It's hard to believe. And um, it's been good to consider practice of brotherhood. Invite Daryl to come up and I'll pray with you before you present your final session to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you that you are uh, our Father. We're, we're your children. It's amazing. It's astounding. We revel in your love for us. Lord, we recognize that being brothers and sisters is a reflection of who you are as God. And um, you want us to be connected. So I pray that our final session here would draw us toward that. I pray for Brother Darrell. And I ask that you would give him just your Holy Spirit guidance as he presents to us this morning his final words of admonition and encouragement. Just bless him in deep ways here as he presents. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Several weeks ago, we sat down at church with the oldest female member of the congregation, She's 98. She's a bit distinguished because if you visit her house, she has an iPad and she likes to show you photos on it of her family. But this particular time, she wanted to talk to us about some concerns she had regarding the church. And she went on to explain that Recently, her Sunday school teacher was dressed in a way that she didn't really feel was appropriate for a Sunday school teacher to be dressed. And as she began sharing this concern with my wife and I, and encouraging us to do something about it, I said, well, do you think there's a way that your relationship with your teacher might be good enough that that you as a sister could share your concern with her. And she said, oh, you know, that's, that's kind of like being in a family where children would try to talk to a sibling about a problem And she said, those things just don't work well. Parents need to do that. Insinuating that 
sisters in the church, it won't go well if they speak their concerns to one another about dress. It, it needs to be the preachers or the bishop that takes care of sharing that concern. And I just can't get that conversation out of my head. And I confess to leaving that conversation with sadness. At 98, her experience of brotherhood was such that it wasn't really safe or right for her to speak to a sister. And I thought about what would it be like to have lived 98 years that way? And also, what was it like for her when her husband was the minister and she were the minister's wife? What types of relationships did they experience in church if, as the parents, they were responsible to take care of all matters? And I thought, that would sound like a good way to burn out a pastor. And it really served as a, as a question for me to, to evaluate how do we accomplish brotherhood? And have we done it meaningfully? I think I just need to do a quick reconnection here. While I do that, I would invite you to turn to Ephesians. And you can go to Ephesians chapter 4. We have talked this weekend about components to build brotherhood. The first component was the foundation of brotherhood. You build that by participating in four building phases. What were the building phases? Quickly call them out. Number one, it was demolition. Number two, reconstruction. Number three, and number four. All right, the second component was taking a look at how we contribute to this framework for teamwork. And we said that we do that by promoting three objectives. Objective number one was what? Walk worthy with giving grace to perfect the pupils. All right. And the third component we want to consider today is the function of collaboration. The function of collaboration. I believe that we need to promote this function. And we can promote this function by practicing and by teaching these skills. Again, what can you promote? How can you promote this function? There are three skills that I want to talk to you about today. Skills that I think can be taught in your classroom. Skills that I think we need to be teaching in the church. Skills that are very valuable if we are to collaborate. We identified brotherhood as our calling and our posture. Teamwork as our context and our purpose. And today I would like you to think of collaboration as your contribution. 
What is it that you bring to the team in which you are promoting brotherhood? How do you collaborate on your team to accomplish brotherhood? So thinking of collaboration as my contribution, it's my presence in action. One of the class norms that I stress with my students and we talked about at the beginning of the year is when you're in class, be fully present. Being present. And what does it look like when you show up with your team? What do you bring with you? And I would like to think of collaboration as the word for that today. Skills that we can teach that will promote the function of collaboration. Ephesians chapter 4, we're back to that. And I want to read the next three verses from where we stopped the other day. And this is going to serve as a foundation for the skills that I want to talk to you about this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, I'm going to read verse Verses 14 through 16. And I should mention, we're, we're breaking mid-sentence here. And the prior information in the sentence told us that the reason gifts have been given are to perfect the saints so they can do the work of the ministry and edify the body so that unity is promoted and there's a complete or a perfect man in the fullness of Christ. Now, verse 14, the reason we want this perfect, complete man that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, making increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. I would like you to simply think this morning about the phrase in verse 16. Excuse me. In verse 16 it says that this body functions and is fitly joined together According to the effectual working in the measure of every part. The effectual working in the measure of every part. That phrase is going to serve as the basis upon which we will look at these skills that need taught. These skills, when taught, I believe will allow the effectual working, the collaboration among us, to function well. <clears throat> the first skill that I think is so important is the skill of personal awareness. Can you teach personal awareness? Have you grown in personal awareness? You see, a body does not function well There is not good teamwork. There's not good collaboration. When individual members are not aware of how their actions impact the greater body. You've probably had the experience of a student totally oblivious to his or her actions. 
and what the class experienced as a result of that insensitivity and lack of personal awareness. We could have a lot of fun talking and telling those stories. You should have seen my student when, well, I have two of them this morning. Recently, we were discussing how easy it is to not get a good grade on Bible memory. And the students were identifying why their grades weren't well. Some of them said, well, I had a lack of sleep. One said, um, I was on the way to school riding in the bus and we had a substitute bus driver and the bus driver needed direction, so I had to tell the bus driver where to go and I couldn't finish studying my Bible memory. And on and on. And after the students aired and, and got it off their, their chest, everything that contributed to their lower s- score, I said, now, you know what? There are many reasons why you may not have done well on this Bible memory test. However, let's think beyond your perspective. Because in the room was sitting a Bible quizzer who is working at memorizing Acts chapters 1 through 8. And is working at 12 verses a week or 13 verses a week as opposed to 3 or 4 verses a week that all the classmates we're working at and struggling to do. I said, "Are you just stop and think about what your perspective sounds like to someone who's doing two or three times more than you and doesn't have a word to say about it. Think about, the perspect- think about that perspective. Learn to be aware. I think of the gentleman that walked into class with the sly smirk on his face and a beautiful McDonald's caramel frappe in his hands five minutes late. What did that say to everybody else? It said, I'm late because I stopped at McDonald's and got a frappe. And I didn't think to bring any for anybody else. Like, I could forgive that a lot easier if he'd have had two and said, hey, Mr. Weaver, this one's for you. <laughs> but that wasn't the case. And again, it's, it's that lack of personal awareness that really can, can alienate yourself from what is happening. And I think it's, it's a skill we need to teach. We need to talk about Philippians 2.4. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. I have found a tool very helpful in the last couple years uh, thinking about personal awareness. And I would like to share a brief clip with you about this tool. And this comes from a gentleman named Patrick Lenciani. And he shares in this short presentation an introduction to um, what he calls the ideal team player. And he shares three ideas that when present and when working well will allow you to collaborate well and to work well with others. Patrick goes on to unpack the other quadrants or the other sections here that overlap and to talk about how the combination of these three traits produces different types of people to work with. And Patrick has a book, The Ideal Team Player. Uh, It has an assessment in it that you can work through with your team as you work at building the skill of personal awareness. And the way Patrick writes his books, if you're not familiar with him, 
The first two-thirds of the book is a story, and then the last third um, is an explanation of his principles and the, the framework out of which he's writing. So an interesting book to read, and uh, I found it very helpful in, in processing what is it that is at work when I see collaboration not working. Patrick goes on to say, someone who is only humble, doesn't have the hunger, doesn't have the smarts, is like a pawn. They're, they're humble, they'll do anything, but missing the other two. If you are characterized as being hungry, but not that smart and not that humble, he says you're a bulldozer. You can get a lot done, but there's probably a lot of uh, wreckage in your path. When you are very smart, very aware of your people skills, but not humble and not hungry, you become a charmer, knowing how to manipulate people, but not in ways that contribute to the team. And then he unpacks where two of them are present, but not the third. And where you have a hungry person, really driven, really desirous to contribute, and very humble, but lacking the people smarts, he says they're an accidental messmaker. He describes them as the people whose emails you ask to read before they send them out, knowing that they're just not going to get it, how it's going to land. And I, I remember doing that for a faculty member, saying, would you please send that to me before you send it out? Oh, yeah, you want to see it? Yes, please. And, and I need to see it. The accidental mess maker. Very gracious people, just not aware of how uh, they are impacting. Uh, the person who's hungry and smart but not humble he says they're like a skillful politician, um, always seeming to uh, work well with people, but at the end of the day, they always come out smelling like a rose. And finally, humble and smart, but not hungry, that's the lovable slacker. Uh, very gracious with everybody, uh, loves to be on the team, knows how to work with people, but really frustrates other team members because they wake up and realize, I'm doing his work, and he doesn't even care. So again, just a quick overview of a tool that I have found very helpful in using with some of the teams that I've worked with and the places that I've wanted to teach collaboration and this skill of personal awareness. It's a, it's a fun assessment to do with, with uh, your team, uh, with a group of people, and uh, Learn, learn from it. If you are lacking in the skill of personal awareness, do you know what it's going to take for you to grow and to develop that skill? It's going to take the rest of your team to help you see that. They have to be willing to call you on it. I remember uh, moving to Grenada to teach school for my first year there. I'd come out of a conventional classroom setting and was going into an individualized setting. And I was permitted to fly to Grenada and arrive on a Tuesday evening. 
I woke up Wednesday morning and had to orient myself to a new house, new surroundings, unpack my suitcases, attend a few events uh, with the mission. And Thursday morning, I went to find my classroom. School started on Monday. And I remember walking into my classroom and seeing the teacher whose place I was taking and saying, so is there something I should you know, be working at today? Trying to kindly and gently figure out where my place is. And she looked at me, and to her credit, I don't remember a, a surprised or shocked expression, but to her credit, she said, well, maybe you could start working at setting up the desks, the name tags, the goal charts. Go ahead with that. I was like, okay. And, you know, I started doing that work and ask what's next. And by Monday morning, the school opened and students came and we had school. It was about two years later, she had the courage to tell me what she really felt when this teacher, taking her place, ambles into the classroom two days before school starts and says, so is there something I should be doing? Uh, She said, I thought, oh dear, who in the world did they sign on to take my place. He's asking if there's something he should do. Doesn't he realize what school's supposed to be like two days before it starts? But it was a learning curve. There were so many things I was not aware of in that new setting. And you really need to rally around new people in your building. Really uh, take care of them. Because there are so many things they're not aware of. Not because they don't want to be aware, but they just don't know they should be aware. So take care of them uh, carefully. I was directing the youth chorus in Grenada one evening, and we were rehearsing a song. And the soprano section said, you know, that, that note it feels just a little bit high for us. Do you think you could pitch the song down a little bit? Well, I'm a tenor, and so the higher you get to sing, the better. And I was like, well, that's just a G. You should be fine singing that. I don't think that's a problem, and moved on with practice. And the next day, my good friend came to me and said, so how would you feel about practice last night? I was like, oh, it was pretty good, you know. We rehearsed some music and went through. So then he needed to try a different approach. (laughs) He said... Do you realize the soprano section was pretty frustrated with you? I'm like, really? Why? Well, you took their concern that they voiced and just kind of slapped it out of the way and moved on. I was like, really? Like, that was a... Yeah, he said, uh, the way you handled it did not sit well. I was like, oh, man, thanks for telling me. And so the next practice started with an apology from the director and, you know, trying to make those repairs and and correct that. But I wasn't aware. And it took a friend willing to collaborate with me, a friend willing to say, Daryl, you're not getting this, a friend that said, do you realize there's a problem? And I'm so grateful. I love telling that story because it it illustrates so many things uh, about brotherhood and about relationship that we have to be willing to do for one another. Self-awareness, the skill of being personally aware, something that we need to practice, we need to teach, and then we need to lead our students in practicing. I discovered that um, it's even something that faith builders expects you to develop. I noticed uh, walking the halls here that there's a sign 
And this sign indicates that you've already done a, a level of self-awareness so that you know where you should be or not be. Only the cooler staff belong at this place. <laughs> and so if you're not one of the cool ones, don't hang out here. Um, so it's just, we do need to keep working at this and developing that skill. The second skill is personal responsibility. The skill of personal responsibility. Again, we're thinking about this idea of the effectual working in the measure of every part. This collaboration that we're doing together. What skills are necessary? This next section is a little diagram that we've talked about at our school a number of years ago after listening to um, Dr. Tripp, uh, Paul David Tripp, speak on getting to the heart of our students. And again, if you're interested in reading more, um, you can look up his resources. But he spoke to this need to get to the heart. And again, this is thinking about the skill of personal responsibility. How can we lead our students in being responsible? And he presented these ideas. First of all, when you have a student that needs a dress, maybe it's behavior, maybe it's an attitude, he said, start by asking, so what happened? What was happening? And he said, yes, you will get a biased report, but no matter who you talk to, you will always get their bias because it's them talking. So what is happening? And then ask them, how did you feel? How did that make you feel? So the student names the conflict or the troubling situation, and next you're going to ask them about the emotion that they felt. And that takes you then to saying, so this is what you said happened, this is how it made you feel, so what did you do about it? What action did you take? And so they tell you what they did or what they did not do. And then you're going to ask, well, what was the reason you took that action? What were you hoping to accomplish through that action? And the student expounds that. And finally you say, so how's this turning out? And when I've tried this already with my children, it, it tends to go something like this. So what happened? Well, he pushed me. Well, how did that make you feel? Bad. What did you do? Well, I pushed him back. Well, what was, what was the reason? Well, I didn't like that they did it to me, and I wanted them to feel what I felt like. And because they're now sitting with that and talking with it and maybe talking consequences, you say, so how'd that turn out? <laughs> Not good. <laughs> and the whole point that Dr. Tripp is making is we must understand that our actions are flowing out of our heart. And what we, the actions we commit are, first of all, originating deep within inside. And he said, don't go immediately to, why did you push him back? That misses the heart. That misses teaching them that out of the heart, the mouth speaks. It misses teaching that from deep within come the actions and the behavior. And it's a, a skill we can teach that helps students take responsibility. And we don't want them taking responsibility to say, 
I'll try to never hit anybody anymore, but we do want them to take responsibility to say, I need to be alert to what is going on in my heart. And if that emotion is going to produce behavior that is sinful or wrong, then I need to start in the heart. There's a second worksheet that I gave to you um, with a bunch, with about four of these forms on. And I just offer that to you as a resource. You, you might tweak it or adjust it, but a place for you to experiment with this. Try walking your students through it and, and gauge their response. You can photocopy that sheet or make more copies. And, and over time, you can begin to look. Probably the first time you take a student through it, they're, they're not going to do well at identifying the emotion and, and taking ownership for everything. But it's a skill you can teach them. And it's a, a process you can use to help teach personal responsibility. There's another piece to the skill of personal responsibility that I think we need to teach. And that is a skill of how to make an apology. How do you make an apology? It's significant to have owned responsibility in order for your apology to be meaningful. So, Three parts that that I think of, and I'm sure these could be described in in other ways. But first of all, I think it's important to recognize. So this is where the I'm sorry for statement comes in. But let's not stop at just teaching our students to say I'm sorry for. Let's take it to the next step where there's an attitude of repentance. I'm sorry for next time... I will. And it's, it's this turn. It's saying, instead of repeating this, next time, I will commit to doing it differently. It's a change. It's, it's the repentance. And finally, let's, consi- let's teach the idea of restitution. I'm sorry for, next time I will, and thirdly, this idea of restoration or restoring is, how can I make it up to you? And oftentimes, if someone apologizes to you and owns that responsibility and then says, how can I make it up to you? Most times we're going to say, oh, don't worry about it. I've done that too, and it's okay. But at least we've recognized the place of restitution by saying, is there a way that I can make it up to you? And sometimes students may have a meaningful way to, for a student to offer restitution, especially if it involves damaging property or something of that nature. I would say that one of the things I've been learning the last couple months as a result of a mentor I've been working with is how shallow and futile some apologies are. Have you ever heard the apology that goes like this? Well, if I did or said anything, I'm sorry. What is that doing? (laughs) That's saying, you know, I have no idea if I did. But if you think I did, well, then I guess I'm sorry. You know, that's not personal responsibility. Or maybe you've heard the apologies that go like this. 
I'm so sorry you took it that way. I never intended for you to feel that way. And that type of apology says, I didn't do anything wrong. Your inability to interpret my intentions was skewed, and so you ended up at the wrong place, and I'm sorry for you that you couldn't think better about what I was saying. So I'm sorry. Like, again, that's not personal responsibility. It places the fault on the one offended, saying you were wrong to be offended at my actions because I'm always pure as gold, and somehow you messed me up. I'm sorry you aren't competent. And, and again, that, that's a bad apology. And recently, my, my, life in, my life in the church world has included this, this tough place of listening to men old enough to be my father not be able to connect with one another because they are unwilling or unable to own how deeply they've hurt other people. And it, it's almost to the place where if, I guess I would say if, if I can't process and understand what it's like to be in your shoes needing to relate to me and feel the hurt that you feel because of how I've treated you, then I might as well not try to apologize for hurting you. I I need to do the work. I need to take the time and say, okay, so they're, they're obviously hurt by my actions, my attitudes, my words. I don't get it. Like, I have no idea how they got there from what I said, but you know what? I'm going to stop, and I'm going to think through this. If that's actually what they felt, and I were in their shoes feeling that from my leader or from my co-pastor, what would that feel like? And once I've paused and reflected on what that would actually feel like, then I believe I'm in a position to offer a sincere apology and to own that. But we, the skill of personal responsibility, I believe, is, is so important for us to teach through getting to the heart and through the apologies that we make. We hold each other hostage and create environments for further offenses when we're not able to identify and own and release these in a sincere way. So the skill of personal awareness, the skill of personal responsibility, and the third skill that I believe we need to be teaching is the skill of peer evaluation. Piper, I really appreciated the presentation you did yesterday on public uh, feedback in the classroom. And I want to talk about that a little bit. I was in fifth grade. In fifth grade, my favorite sport at recess and gym class is softball. And it's still my favorite sport. It's just that pastors and deacons and bishops don't play a lot of it. We'd, we'd probably get along a lot better if we did. Um, I don't get to play much anymore, but I enjoy playing with my boys. Softball. And you know what? This particular day, I was embarking on some peer evaluation. 
There was a student in my class who grew up on a farm. So she was very strong. She was very capable of hard work. And when she hit the ball, it sailed into the outfield. The problem was, most times she struck out. It was rare that she hit the ball. And when she did hit the ball, maybe 25% of the time, she was early on her swing, and so it would curve up over third base and land foul. And sometimes, that rare occasion, she would be just a little bit late and dump it down the left field line, and she'd get a double. That was her softball ability. And to me, as a fifth grader, who, of course, through my skills of peer evaluation, was able to determine that I was a lot better at softball than she was, I took it upon myself to evaluate her with my peers. And I said, well, you know, she's, she's not that great. We you know, can't always depend on her. There are a lot of strikeouts, and I, I forget all of the descriptors that I would have used in my evaluation. I, I remember doing this to a circle of my friends inside the double doors at school. And after I was done with my evaluation, a voice pipes up and says, well, Daryl, you're not so good yourself. And here it was her. She was in the circle. And I didn't know it. three characteristics of an evaluation evaluations must take place when the one being evaluated is present evaluations need to include the perspective of the one being evaluated And evaluations must have preparation. In other words, to evaluate someone without giving them time to prepare or without preparing them for how they will be evaluated is cruel. Surprise, it's your day for evaluation. Oh, what am I being evaluated for? Oh, you just wait and find out. Like, there's no hope of doing well at that. Evaluations, when people are present, it must include their perspective and there must be preparation. So in a speech class that I teach, a part of the time after speech is to do peer evaluations. And the student being evaluated has the evaluation sheet ahead of time. The classmates all have it. They all use it on each other. And after the speech, just like Piper explained, The student is present, and you are offering this feedback, this evaluation. And there are, we we do it in two ways. I, I ask, are there any commendations? Anything that you say, this went really well for you. I really liked how, and then we flip to a, are there any critiques? Anything that you would suggest to do differently next time? And in all of that, It is so helpful if the one being evaluated has the opportunity to share their perspective first. And I've not always remembered to do this, but it's it's a commitment I have this year to do better at it. 
as soon as the speech is done and the student takes their seat, to say, hey, Brian, how did you think your speech went? And Brian is an honest guy. And he's probably even been telling his peers before the speech what he thinks might work and what he thinks might not. And then he gives the speech and he says, well, you know, I really wasn't prepared. I, or, and all his classmates go, whew, glad I don't have to be the one to say that. Because <laughs> Brian said it already. And giving the person evaluated the opportunity to share that perspective kind of brings an honesty to the group and a release that it's safe to talk. And at the end of last year, I was getting feedback from my students about how they felt this went and whether we did too much evaluation. And they said, no, the fact that you always did evaluation for everybody made it safe for us to participate. Because if you, the day you would have said, well, we're kind of short on time, let's not do evaluation, we would have speculated, oh, was that speech too bad to talk about? Or did he think my classmate didn't need evaluation? Well, he didn't skip it on the day I gave my speech. And so it, the consistency and thoroughness is so important. I have a leadership team where the last two years, as we've created kind of shuffled some responsibilities and wanted to make sure that these responsibilities go well, I've actually given an evaluation to the lead pastor and then to the leadership team. And I've, I've said to the pastor, would you please evaluate yourself on these lists of about 10 questions? How do you do preparing for meetings? Do you get things on the agenda done? Do you keep the meeting moving at a good pace? Um, how do you feel when you go home from the meeting? And the, the lead pastor fills that out. And then I give the evaluation to his team and say, please fill this out on the pastor that's leading you. And both times when we've sat down to review that together, the places that the team is saying, you know, our pastor's only getting this done sometimes. The pastor has already said, I'm not doing very well at this piece here. I'm only getting it done sometimes. And it's such, a, it's such an affirmative process because the, the pastor sees a, a reality with his team and they can then talk about, so, okay, you already know you're not getting this done. Why not? How, how can we help? Because we've seen it too. And so as you do evaluation, um, be thorough um, and, and follow these ideas of, of doing it when, when they're present, uh, including their perspective, and also what is the standard upon which you're going to do that evaluation and then talk about that and have that available before time or with your job description or at the beginning of the year. You can do this evaluation, this peer evaluation. Uh, you can teach this skill um, in many ways as you review meetings, as you give feedback on group work, as you observe each other teaching. Um, you can teach it to your students as they edit essays um, have them share essays and do that peer editing and teach them what you want them to look for. Um, you as a teacher don't have to be the only one finding all the capitalization and punctuation errors. Tell the classmates to look for that. If they can look for it and highlight it and correct some of that before the essay is ever submitted, it goes a long way to helping the grade be a bit better. We have to become comfortable reflecting on how well we've collaborated the skill of peer evaluation. Personal awareness, my impact on others, personal responsibility, 
owning my mistakes and peer evaluation, hearing feedback. Which skill is God inviting you to teach your students? I would like to give you a minute or two to reflect and to write, and then we're going to have some discussion yet in small groups again. So just a minute or two, reflect a little bit on these skills. Where have you sensed the need to do some work in teaching these skills? Go ahead. I would invite you to stand and again take three or four minutes. uh, Turn around, find a group of four to six people and share out uh, what it is that you can teach, uh, which skill is, is what God would have you teach and uh, practice, focus on as you return to your class. Well, go ahead, stand, and have some brief conversation, and I'll pull you back together in three or four minutes. I would welcome you to return to your seats. If not all of you got to share, I would encourage you to do that uh, over lunchtime or exchange contact information and continue your conversation. Brotherhood, teamwork, and collaboration. I just want to bless you as you put these to work in your context, in your setting, and in the place that you find yourself ministering to build God's kingdom and to teach and live this brotherhood. Let's pray. Lord, again, I just want to ask your blessing on all these educators. It is overwhelming to think about how many students are represented by the schools that we represent. How many families are impacted by our example and our presence in the classroom of their children? And Lord, I just want to commit this group to your care and to your keeping. Continue the good work that you've started in us. Lord, help us to look not on our own things, but on the things of others. Give us courage to love each other enough to care for one another and to speak to one another. Take us safely home with your traveling mercies. And as we re-enter our classrooms tomorrow, give us courage to implement what you're calling and showing us that we need to work at. And Lord, may your church be built because of the commitment of all these educators to teach and practice in their schools the relationship between brotherhood, teamwork, and collaboration. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.